C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, he said this. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Think about that. If I find in myself a desire that there's, no, there's nothing in this world can satisfy, it's most probable that I was made for another world. In other words, we're made to live for something or someone bigger than ourselves. That's what we're wired for. It's what we're made for. It's the design and purpose of God that we serve the true king and that we would know his kingdom. See, friends, our topic this morning is worship. And we're walking through in our series through the summer seminars, these foundational truths as the, we look at the Christian faith. And we're going to uh, talk about worship today. And I want to start our time together with a, a framing thought. God created you with a capacity for awe. God created you, dear brother and sister, with a capacity for awe. See, there's a, a pastor and biblical counselor uh, named Paul David Tripp. He wrote a book about this. The book is called Awe, Why It Matters in Everything That We Think, Say, and Do. And he says that we're created with an awe capacity, a, a capacity that is unique and it's a central part of who we are as image bearers of God. That it's the ability to be awestruck and it's, it's so powerful. It can be aimed in the right direction and lead to life and godliness and a sense of humility and surrender to the Lord when you put your awe in the right place. Or sometimes we put our awe in the wrong direction and, and our awe aimed in the wrong ways can result in worship of self or pursuit of success or giving ourselves over to false promises and the flawed powers or ways of this world. You see, Paul Tripp, he says, where you look for awe will shape the direction of your life. Where you look for awe will shape the direction of your life. Let me ask you, where do you look for awe? Or to whom do you look for awe? See, this is the challenge to, to, to get us started in thinking about worship today, is we have to realize that misplaced awe will keep you forever dissatisfied. It'll leave you self-centered, fearful, angry, envious, exhausted, discontented. See, friends, we've been looking at the big picture. Okay, we've been going through the series now. We've been kind of going through the big picture of the Bible. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, this is where this, this, this began, this, this misplaced sense of awe. See, the, ever since the Garden, awe of God has been replaced with awe of self or awe of this or awe of that. There's a, the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, um, who I love. He, he once said this he, in a sermon. He said, since, since humanity fell in the garden, we have too often sought for our enjoyments where the serpent finds his. <sighs> I think that should challenge us at a, a deep level because it matters where our awe is directed. It's the central concern, really, is, is our hearts. It's, our, it, it, it's where our hearts are, 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 are directed towards. Because sin, dear friends, is in so many ways misplaced awe. Because what we worship determines our thoughts and our actions. See, Spurgeon, he said that 
because he loved to preach about this. He said that the sweetest joy in all of life is to know God. It's God himself who is our object of joy. And he says when our circumstances, and maybe you've been here, when your circumstances leave you feeling that you have nothing to rejoice about, the reality is that we can rejoice in the one who is the unchangeable joy giver. That we can rejoice in him. Spurgeon says he's everything to us. He is our joy, our hope, our all He says our joy depends not on what we are in ourselves, but upon what he is in himself. That's where joy comes from. That's what worship is about. See, this is the heart of worship. This is what we need to begin this morning because worship is what we're made for. Worship is the calling of our entire life, every part of who we are. And in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to see this morning that a life of worship is a life of generosity. Awe of God and his blessings in the gospel bring about a sense of gratitude for what God has done, which results in the response of generosity, a response of worship and praise to God and an entirely different way of viewing life. We become generous because God is generous. He's lavished us with his grace in Christ. And so we, we in turn praise him and, and share his goodness with others. So grab your Bible. We're going to read this morning. Our text to focus on today is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. If you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. Love to have you follow along. We're going to be looking at what I'm going to call a a case study in generosity. It's a case study in worship and generosity. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth to frame their whole lives in the truth of of the gospel, and he wanted their thoughts and actions to come into fruitful obedience to God in light of the grace he's lavished on them. Now, what's happening here is Corinth is a city in ancient Greece, and, and, and there's at this very time a lot of suffering happening in the church in Jerusalem, across the Mediterranean there. And so the church in Jerusalem, these Christians in Jerusalem, were being persecuted harshly by their Jewish family and friends. And there was already a famine happening at this time. So here's a little bit of the historical background. In AD 46, under Emperor Claudius, there was a famine that began because of the various conditions throughout the the. the uh, the weather and all kinds of various things, but uh, there was a famine that began, and we know this from Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, and the Jews who had begun following Jesus had been ostracized by their families and alienated from the marketplace. Their support network was gone. And so here they find themselves, food is scarce, they don't know where to turn, and so Paul goes around the churches around uh, the Mediterranean, raising, uh, collecting gifts to bring to them who are struggling. And so what we're going to see here is Paul taking a practical problem, and he prov- the opportunity to provide assistance, and he reframes the entire thing in the light of the gospel, and reshapes their perspective for it to be about worship and witness. So let's read. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. 
As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity, generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing with many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. Thanks be to the Lord. Okay, dear friends, here's how we're going to Here's how we're going to tackle this. This passage is about worship and witness. And we're going to look at three parts, and it's really three paragraphs as we look at the text, where we see how the awe of God in the grace that he's shown us in the gospel results in generosity. And we're going to look at what I'm going to call, okay, the three parts are this. I'm going to call it the goal, the giver, and the gift, right? The goal, the giver, and the gift. So let's just jump right in, and we'll look at how Paul writes uh, in this text here. So let's look at the goal, which is generosity, right? Verses six through nine. Go back to the beginning of the text there because Paul begins by taking a, a very practical problem, the hungry and needy Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and he wants to make sure these believers in Corinth have a proper perspective. They aren't merely giving to a practical need. He isn't going to twist their arm about it. He doesn't want them to do it out of obligation or reluctance. And instead, he wants them to view the entire thing through the lens of generosity. It's connected to their worship of God. Okay, look at verse 6 again. Let me read. I want to point out a couple, a key word here. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously, or some of your Bibles say bountifully, will also reap generously. Okay, the key word in this sentence is that word generous or bountiful. Okay, in the original language in Greek, that is the word eulogy. When we think of the word eulogy, usually we think of a funeral, right? You think of a, a eulogy is when someone stands up at a, a, a memorial service and they share a few kind words about the person who had passed and, and you eulogize, you, you, you say something nice about someone or reflect on their life. Now, this, it, it does mean that, but in this context and throughout the Greek-speaking world at this time, that word eulogy had a much richer and more powerful meaning than merely that instance. And so it's a, it's a powerful word that refers to praise or blessing that we give to someone. In the Bible, almost every single time, this word is used for our praise of God, the blessing that the reflecting back praise to him. Or sometimes it's used of God's blessings to us in Christ. See, this is a word about awe. It's a word that describes the lavish grace of God to us in Jesus and the gratitude and praise that we give back to him. In other words, this word is a word about worship. 
Now, why does Paul use this particular word in this context? It's kind of an odd place for him to use it. Because in almost every instance, it's, it, it's very clearly about worship to God. And in this instance, he's saying, sow seeds with generosity, bountifully. He uses a worship word when talking about giving to help people in need. Now, why does he do this? In verse 6, I want you to see this. In this context, this particular word It's in this metaphor of sowing seeds. And so it's communicating the manner in which you do something. So this would be another way to maybe translate this. Whoever sows in the manner of blessing, in the manner of bounty, in the manner of generosity will reap an awe-inspiring harvest. In other words, be generous in how you you, you plant those seeds for the kingdom because you will see an awe-inspiring harvest in return. But it's not only the manner, there's one more layer to this word, eulogy. It's not just the manner in which you do something, but it is done with the intention that the blessing may be felt by others. It has a purpose. In the grand picture, it is about blessing to God, that God would receive the glory, but also to bless others. In other words, sowing generously is a self-giving act, not a self-serving act. It's seeking the good of others and not yourself. It's ultimately a heart issue. This is why Paul goes on in the next verse, in verse 7, after he he describes this this lavish blessing, almost like the the parable of the sower, where, where he's scattering seed in all these different places and God is bringing the harvest He says in verse 7, he he talks about giving from a cheerful heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. He's talking about obeying God and about reflecting the condition of our hearts, which is paramount. There's a a great pastor, theologian, Jonathan Edwards. He preached often about the issues of our heart when it comes to obeying the Lord. He, he, He talked about a, he, 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 he's preached that a heart of obedience is not summoning the will to do what you don't want to do. That's how we often think of obedience. It's like, well, I don't really want to do it, but I'm going to give it the old try and I'm going to do my best to bend my will to it. He says, that's not biblical obedience. He said, biblical obedience is fruit. It's the outward result of inner transformation. It's the fruit that's produced of something that's going on inside you. See, Jonathan Edwards used this concept when he preached about justification by faith alone. In his sermons about justification by faith, which launched revivals in New England in the 1700s, he describes how obedience doesn't cause our salvation. It is the fruit of your salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He says, in other words, obedience doesn't come from our own power to do what we don't want to do. Instead, obedience comes is when we live out of a new delight in God. It comes when we find our awe in Him. A totally different perspective and one that changes our hearts, friends. See, I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. Um, C.S. Lewis put it this way. When he talks about coming to, to, to obey the Lord or to walk in His ways, he said that there's not just two different kinds of people, people who obey and who disobey. He said there's actually three different kinds of people. 
He said there's those who, who don't obey God and they say, I'm going to live for myself. Forget God. I don't need him. And then he said there's, there's people who, who do their best to obey God, but out of a wrong heart. And he said this is where most of us live, in the tension here. He says we try often to live for God, but he said our lives are divided. We will, we will often constantly negotiate every thought and action, weighing how can I balance my will with God's will? How can I find a way to do enough to obey God while still, by still withholding enough for myself and, and negotiating every instance in this way? Lewis compares this kind of obedience to paying taxes. How about that? <laughs> he says sometimes we'll obey God with the same kind of heart. That we'll say, well, we don't want to get in trouble. So, but let's negotiate it in such a way where we give God what he's demanding and asking of us, but trying to negotiate a way to withhold what we can for ourselves and to be able to get enough. And we do this parsing out of our thoughts and actions every day. Lewis says members of this second group, the ones that we're just talking about, he says most of us belong here. He says members of the second group are always unhappy. Because you are constantly negotiating wills. God's will and mine. <clears throat> See, he says there's a third category. Those who obey from a right heart. And he said in, in, the, in this group, this is what we're called to. He says we don't have a divided heart anymore. This is when you truly crucify the old self. This is what he says when the will of Christ no longer limits yours, it is yours. That's what we're called to. God's will. That we would wake up every day and we would say, Lord, I want to be on your agenda today. What do you desire and can I walk in those ways? It's a sense of surrender and humility. See, we need to ask, how do we know when we're operating in this new self? Like if we're over here, truly surrendered to God, aligned with him, how do we know that we're going to be in the will of Christ? And, and what Paul says is it's when you find yourself in awe of the generosity of God who has redeemed you and you begin to live a life of gratitude and joy and generosity that reflects him. So let's go to the second part here. We're going to talk about the giver. That God is generous. Verses 10 and 11. Okay, this is where Paul makes sure that we have things in the right order. And I just want to be real clear here, friends. He says very plainly, God is generous and he has blessed you to be a blessing to others. It is so critical because what he does is he makes sure we have things in the right order here. And it's so important that we understand this order because it guards against the prosperity gospel. I want to just share something with you. I want to explain what I mean by that term. There's a version of the gospel out there in the church that will tell you that if you obey God, you do that so that you can be blessed. It's a transaction that begins with me doing something for God and then expecting a blessing in return. If I'm obedient, I'll succeed. I'll gain wealth and standing and success. If I'm needy and poor, it's because I'm not obeying enough. This is how this goes. It's, it's I haven't given enough to the church. I haven't let God, I haven't made God happy with this or with that. And there's a transactional relationship that happens in that 
framework. Now, I heard an example of this. Let me just tell you what it sounds like. There was a, I heard an example of this a couple years ago in a large church in the Bay Area in, in California where some of our family lives. They were uh, at a church that was doing a fundraising campaign, and the pastor presented the campaign in this way. He said, give to our campaign, and if you don't see God bless you tangibly, miraculously, in the next 90 days, you can get your money back. That was the message. Give money, expect a blessing, and if it doesn't happen, you'll get your money back. It's completely a transaction. It is a toxic, unbiblical way of thinking because what it does, it puts me at the center. It puts me in a position of receiving a benefit from God. If I put that coin in the vending machine, I get blessing to pop out. It is not worship. It's not sacrifice. It's not generosity. What it is, is it's awe of self. See, what I want you to see, go to verse 11 here, because what Paul does is he looks at these Christians in Corinth. It's a very wealthy city. And he says, look, you got to get the order correct here. All right. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. There's three things that are happening here. God has blessed you. He's blessed you richly, firstly in Christ, in the grace that he's shown as he's died for you. But he's also given you material blessings. He's asked you to be a steward of those things. And so God has blessed you so that you can be generous. Not so that you get more so that you can be generous, and it results in thanksgiving to God. You see how those things flow? He's saying God is the initiator. He's the giver. He's the generous one. He's lavished us with blessings, no matter how small and seemingly meaningless it is, whether that's a resource financially or a skill or talent that you have or your time, whatever it is, God has blessed us so that we can be generous. See, our calling is to be like him, the generous one, the one who has been so lavish in his grace to us that we get to be generous as an act of worship back to him. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's the kind of witness that the world needs so that the gospel of Jesus Christ shines through, that it's not about me or you, it's about him. See, we need to grasp this, that God is firstly generous to us, and then we respond Okay, let's look at the third part, because this is where it really comes home. The gift, which is the gospel. Verses 12 to 15. Okay, remember, this passage is about worship and witness. I want you to see how Paul kind of describes the results here. Uh, Look at verse 12. He says, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, there's the practical problem, but is also overflowing with many expressions of thanks to God. It's it, meaning it's, it's about worship. It's not ultimately, I mean, the practical need is so important, but it's causing others to rejoice and worship God, give thanks to him for his provision. It's about worship. And then secondly, it's about witness. Look at the very next verse, verse 13. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. In other words, others will rejoice because of the generosity. 
It is, this is the missional element of this passage. This is where we have the challenge to live consistently with our confession of God's own generosity in the gospel. We say to people, God has shown his mercy and grace to us when we're lost and dead in our sin. He has been abundantly generous farther than we can ask or imagine. We point to the gospel of Jesus Christ and then Paul is saying, live consistently with that reality that every word and deed is you having a gracious, generous heart and attitude to point people to Christ. This is the kind of witness that the world needs to see in us. It's the gospel on display. It's not just the gospel in word. It's the gospel in living reality. See, the reason why Paul refocuses the Corinthians' attention on the indescribable gift we have in Christ, as he says in verse 15, is he says that we need to realize that he died for us while we were still sinners. Undeserving and inadequate to save ourselves. And Paul knows that Something as practical as our money reveals who or what we worship. I mentioned Paul David Tripp earlier, and another book to recommend, and we've been kind of doing this through the series, there's the titles in your sermon handout, so if you want to check them out later. He wrote a book I'd highly recommend, and it's called Redeeming Money, How God Reveals and Reorients Our Hearts. I read this book recently, and I filled up, like, front and back of handwritten notes on it. It was, it's so good. And he says in this book that money is one of the principal ways that you demonstrate who you think you are. Let that one sink in for a second. Money is one of the principal ways that you demonstrate who you think you are. What's your identity? What you care about? Who or what you're in awe of? See, he recognizes that that our resources are a strong indicator to reveal where our awe is directed. See, if you just step back for a moment, some of the central sicknesses of our culture are ingratitude, discontentment, envy. And these are the result, these are the fruit, the bad fruit of what happens when you take things like our money or other things, you direct your awe in the wrong places and you will result in being unsatisfied, discontent, envious of others. It's not good fruit that comes from that. We will be ungrateful because when we've placed our awe in false saviors, they will never satisfy. This is why Jesus says, okay, we used our call to worship from Matthew 6. He says at the end of that paragraph, we cannot serve both God and money. In other words, who captures your devotion? King Jesus or King money? Let's just be honest. See, Paul uses this moment when the Corinthians are considering to give generously to the ministry of the church to address a deeper issue in their heart. And it's what we need to learn today as well. And it's this, the opportunity to give, whatever it is, whether it's money or other things in our lives, the opportunity to give or be generous is an opportunity to grow in awe of God's goodness towards us in Christ. Listen to this again. You can just go to the next slide there. It's on the slide. The opportunity to give is an opportunity to grow in our awe of God's goodness to us in Christ. 
See, when we truly grasp our spiritual poverty, that we're lost and dead in sin, and that God has lavished his grace upon us through Christ's death and resurrection and the new birth, the only proper response is wholehearted worship. A life of worshipful generosity, lavishing praise upon God and the blessings back to him through serving him in everything that we do. Everything we hold dear, making ourselves available for God's kingdom. That's what worship is about. See, friends, worshipful generosity should affect everything we say and do. It's a, it's a lifestyle of investing in God's kingdom. It's a heart tuned to his ways. It changes our perspective. It brings him glory. It causes others to praise him. Let me just give you a, maybe a, a small illustration of this or a, something that I, I encountered this week. Um, I heard a story this week that I thought would help, help us understand some of the ways that God multiplies in the kingdom, is the blessings of the fruit of, of our generosity. Um, Mike and Carrie Hagee, who are members here at our church, they had an opportunity uh, last year to go to Malawi. And they visited and visited with some missionaries there and did some work traveling deep into the middle of Malawi, had like hours of driving up and down hills and things, and there's great stories about that. Um, while they were there, uh, and we've developed some relationship with the ministries there in Malawi through our missions team, they got to experience how the local people there are struggling to have the resources to be able to meet the needs even of just their daily food, of the crops that they need to grow, of, of things that are happening within their country. And so the country of Malawi is experiencing a famine in the last few years, and they've had major flooding in portions of the southern part of the country. Food is scarce and people are struggling big time. And so they were there watching all this happen, and they met a man named uh, Chief Aniro Chikunzi. But a wonderful uh, a Christian man that, that they met. And, and Mike, in, in order to help with some of the work that they're doing with their farming, he gave him $100 to invest in the work for their farm for this year. And through the stewardship of that gift, uh, the chief was able to buy fertilizer and some other supplies, and, and they grow maize, and so he invested it in all the things they were going to grow, and, and, and that has resulted in this abundant harvest beyond what they could have done before, and it has yielded many hundreds of times uh, 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 beyond what they could have done, and they now have, and I just saw a picture of it this last week that Carrie showed me, this huge room full of bags of maize, and it's something like I was trying to count on the picture, like 50 gigantic bags, hundreds of pounds of food for them and their family. And the key here, friends, is it has now overflowed in blessing beyond them to their entire surrounding community. The stewardship of this gift, investing it to grow a crop, has yielded a harvest that not only has provided for their needs, but has overflowed in blessing to others. The surrounding community being not only fed, but now having seeds for next year and the year after and a, an abundant harvest year by year, if the Lord wills. See, what we need to grasp today in the simple illustration is that fruitfulness is meant to spread seeds for exponential growth. Let me just ask you, why does fruit exist? Yeah, it tastes really good, but fruit has seeds in it. It's meant to exponentially create more fruit. 
And so fruit, that's what it's for. It's for the the spreading of more seeds in order to have exponential growth. In other words, God has been generous to us in the gospel. And when we sow seeds generously for his kingdom, he can cause exponential growth beyond what we can ask or imagine. So I want to leave you with two challenges. The first is sow generously into God's kingdom. Whose kingdom are we living for? I'll put it just maybe plainly, as if you're not giving to the work of God's kingdom, in whatever capacity, it's financial resources, but other things, your time and, and effort and your focus, if you're not giving to the work of the kingdom, start now. But if you already are, evaluate where you're at with that, and maybe you could, maybe God would ask you to be more generous. I want you to think about the kingdom impact that could be made, the people who don't know Jesus, who need to come to Christ, Like the parable of the sower, generously, bountifully scattering seeds where God has tilled the soil of people's hearts. Anticipating a harvest for his glory. That's what we want to see. So, so generously. The second challenge is give God your first and best. There's a biblical concept. We, We don't have time to get into it in all the details now, but there's a theme across the entire scriptures about first fruits. And what God has asked of his people through the Old Testament and the New is that God would receive our first fruits, our first and best. When you have a a, a blessing that you don't give God what's left over at the end after you've used up what you want, you give him the first and best. His, the priority. We need to check our hearts with this, friends. Because when you grow in awe of God... This will flip around in your heart. It will transform your understanding of worship from obligation or reluctance or whatever other things that are are, are when we negotiate the wills to, to having, giving God our first and best because we are so in awe of him and what he has done for us. That it will be an anticipation and a joy to see what God will do. Let's pray. Lord, you have so richly blessed us. In Christ, you have richly blessed us in that you have sent your son to die in our place. Lord, your grace is so abundant and so evident. We stand unworthy of it. And yet you make us stewards of that message of the gospel. And you make us stewards of the various tangible resources that we have. Lord, we want to reflect back a heart of worship to you. Gratitude and generosity that you would do a deeper work within us, that ultimately all that we say and do would be worshipful to you. Lord, use us for your kingdom purposes, whatever those may be, and in whatever fashion we are surrendered to you. Give us a heart of worship to lift you up, Lord, and praise your name and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.